Hello and welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm Ben Hunter, Booktopia's Fiction Category Manager. And after a long winter, summer and the Christmas holidays are finally on their way. And with them come all the big ticket blockbuster reads of the year. Um, When I say blockbuster reads, you might think of something like Matthew Riley or, or Dan Brown, books that have adventure, high stakes and a fair share of explosions. Um, well, f- South Australia's very own Fiona McIntosh, I would or- argue, is also the creator of very good blockbusters. And she has the bestseller status to prove it. Uh, and not only does her new novel, The Champagne War, have explosions, in addition to pops, it has effervescence and intoxication. Uh, it uh, promises true love, tragedy, war, uh, treachery, torment, so much. And that's all within the first few pages. And I am thrilled to be joined by Fiona over Skype as we continue to keep our social distance. Fiona, welcome to the Booktopia podcast. And thank you for having me back. That is a wonderful introduction. I'm, I'm, I'm so thrilled you've described my book in this way because it's, it's something I feel strongly about that, you know, my books will always have that adventuresome quality to them. Um, I don't want to just be known. I mean, that word romance always gives me the chills. I don't want to be known as that. But you, I can't deliver a book without romance in it because that's the heart of a, a story for me. But it's not the whole of the story. And around it, I like um, big stakes, like you were saying, and um, lives in trauma and tragedy at every turn. And, you know, that's what, for me, makes a book tick. So I do appreciate that you've noticed that. Oh, good. Well, this book really has a a lot to offer. Um, Can you tell us about it Um, and and its origin? I heard a whisper from our um, Penguin Random House representative that uh, there's a some kind of family history or family connection of yours to this very time and place? Well, not so much that. What The way I write my books uh, annoys a lot of people um, because I don't plot for them at all. So it has to be, the story has to come and find me. And the way that I, the only way I can explain that is I put myself in the way of a story. And so I was talking to my publisher um, about three years ago and was saying, look, I can write about this or that or how about this? And she said, do you know, I'd love a story about champagne because it's her favorite tipple. And I said, "Okay, so we'll write about champagne. That's what I'm very happy to do a story about that. And so I just got on a plane and flew to the Champagne region of France and I walked the Avenue de Champagne. I know, I know I can imagine you rolling your eyes, but I walked the Avenue and I thought, come and find me. There is a story here. I know it is. Come and find me. And we were just walking, walking. My husband was saying, you make us very nervous when you do this because I don't even know why we're here. And I said, you've just got to trust the method. Anyway, we both paused at this one house, all the other houses in this avenue for those people who have visited this region, are very grandiose. They're making a statement. They're saying, we are the best champagne um, provider in the world. And look at us. We have this magnificent home. Um, This is our cellar. And this is where we welcome our guests. And we saw this very typical, almost modest French home. But it looked like a miniature castle. It was beautiful. And I stopped 
and said, I could live in that. That's what I'd like to live in. And standing outside were some tradesmen, all in their tradie gear, you know, and they were talking and there was obviously renovations underway and we were taking a photograph. And a woman turned around and said to me, uh, can we help you? And I said, oh, I'm sorry, we don't want to be in the way, but we're just, do you mind if we take a photograph? It's such a pretty home. And she said, would you like to see inside? And I thought she was one of the tradies because that's how she was dressed, in a sort of flannel shirt, uggy kind of boots and jeans. And I said, um, yes, of course I'd love to. And she said, well, come on in. So she took us in and started popping a bottle of champagne and pouring us champagne. Turns out this is... Um, the, this is House Garnet, this is Sophie Signol, sixth generation Champenoise, who owns all of this? And she just happened to be outside when I walked and she was telling the tradies about some renovations in the house and she just sat us down, started talking about um, champagne and what I was doing and I found the more she spoke, the more I realised I was writing about her. She's a widow, she's sixth generation, She's done it on her own. She's inherited. It's usually men who inherit, but she's inherited, taken over from her father. She learnt um, at her mother's skirts and her father's belt strap, so to speak. And she's walked the vine. She knows them all um, almost individually. She has lived and breathed champagne since she was born. And I said to her, Sophie, can I write you? And she said, so long as you give me a torrid love affair, yes, you can write about me. So... That's how it started. And the story found me. Sophie is my story. And off I went. I was home and hosed from there on. It was easy. You are so fantastically lucky. lucky. And this does happen. My editor says, you drive me mad the way this happens because it happened for the Pearl Thief. It happened for the Diamond Hunter in a similar way. I just went out and thought, find me. Find me. I'm here. Find me. And... So this story found me really and Sophie is in my life and I've since been back to that home three times and at one stage she said we're just going to give you the home for two nights just stay here and absorb it and live it and understand it and magnificent so I was in that home looking out at people coming up the avenue and staring at the beautiful home so it was it was an amazing experience and I've been into all the cellars and spoken to the the makers and the the vineyard workers and everything and and learn the history of this region and this house and the life you know um it's been brilliant really you know that's truly extraordinary yeah uh take me back to that history can you can you walk us through the cultural ascendance of champagne um how did it come to be the drink of choice from new york to moscow and what is the importance of champagne for France during its survival in this torturous war you write about? Yes. Okay. So um, champagne has had quite a rocky road, actually. I mean, it, it, it goes back to Dom Perignon and the legend goes that, you know, uh, bottles used to pop all the time and they didn't realize that this, the, the yeast and the sugar uh, creating all this effervescence was going to explode bottles and they still explode to this day, you know, down in the cellars. So they thought that was a bad thing to begin with. They were, they were making a still wine. They weren't trying to make a fizzy wine and it was seen as a bad thing as plonk, you know. So, mm. but then people began to drink it and realize that it had complexity through these bubbles. And then the whole um, 
the whole skill began to develop to actually get these bubbles to be what I would call and they would call chiseled. So that's what you're after, these very fine bubbles that would ascend in a particular way and add that magnificent spritz on your tongue and explode the flavor of that wine. So that's what they were after. And it used to be a lot sweeter. Um, and it was um, one of the um, widows, it was um, Madame Pomery, who said, no, we can do better than this. I think we should go drier. And so champagne began to get more complex, more dramatic, more demanding of the person drinking it so that it was no longer just swallow it down and, and you know, cheers, cheers, santé and all this sort of thing. It became more and more complex and only royalty really could afford it. And it became the drink of the royals, particularly in Britain, Queen Victoria and uh, the Tsar in Russia. And of course, Americans could begin to afford this drink. It was really the regal drink and the drink of very the aristocracy. Only they could afford it. And so all of champagne was being exported. And then came the plague that hit all the wine fields, all the vineyards throughout France. And champagne, the Champagne region thought it was... Um, um, immune to um, the disease that came in on an American vine, as I understand it. And it turned out that something like 70% of all the vines in the, um, the whole of the country were killed off and they had to burn their vines because, but Champagne was the last to be touched. It was the last region and then it happened. And somebody had the wise idea to bring in healthy vines again from America and graft them. And this was all happening just before World War I. Um, so they grafted on these vines. Um, phylloxera was the disease. And um, it took and they began again. They basically had to start their industry all over again from scratch. And then World War I came. And the way into Paris. So the Germans always wanted to take the jewel um, of Europe, which was Paris. They needed that capital. They wanted France. The way to get to Paris was through the Champagne fields, because if you're standing in Germany, the way through for the Kaiser and his armies was through the eastern um, edge, the eastern boundary. Um, and so Champagne, the Champagne region stood in the way, and the only city standing in the way of Paris was Reims. Um, so that's why Reims was under fire and bombing and the Champagne region was um, such a taut, terrible time during World War I. And it was carved up with trenches. The whole area was carved up with trenches. But the people kept still working whilst they were being bombed. So many people lost their lives working in the vineyards being bombed. Um, and I saw fascinating uh, photos on your Facebook that you were sharing of um, whole communities going underground into these cellars that were dug out of the chalk under yeah. the city of Reim uh, as the shelling went on above and their whole lives were just lived underground upside, for a time. They went upside down. So the whole of the city of Reims turned upside down because Reims was flattened. Um, the mm. grand cathedral that had seen, that had crowned, I don't know how many kings of France and I don't know how many forests had been cut down for its uh, magnificent um, ceiling. Uh, it all burned. They used it as their marker to hit the city of Reims. They used the cathedral spires. So they just bombed it 
burned it. It was shattered. And this whole city that was a fabulous, big, bustling city went underground into what they call the Crayers. Now, the whole champagne industry had, had used these Roman tunnels um, to store their um, champagne at a perfect temperature. It never got too hot. It never got too cold. It wasn't too damp. It was perfect. Um, these limestone uh, quarries, you could say, underneath. And there were kilometers and kilometers and kilometers. There were hundreds of kilometers of storage. And so the whole city went underground. And there was um, hospitals, schools, cafes, orchestral recitals. There were... Um, midwifery sections, there were homes, there was the residential section, and people just lived underground. And so there were all sorts of other problems of living underground, a subterranean life, and they'd come up to just get fresh air now and then when the bombing was in a quiet time. So it was a city beneath the city, and I have walked under those crayers. I've been there and looked at where the Red Cross, where the hospital was, and there are all these signs that point you, you know, so that people could find their way around. It was incredible. It's incredible. That's It's such a rich history um, that, that just that just shines through this, this, this book where, where so much is going on. There was just so much. Once I'd met Sophie and I began to scratch the surface, I just, how much, I could have made it three books, you know, I could have easily made it three books. There's so much. Um, I really feel like there's something for everyone in this. Uh, uh, as long as you give in to the magic of this book and let it get under your skin, you know, there's the action, there's the mystery, there's the tragedy, there's the romance, sensuality, um, and there's this history and this um, culture um, all together. Um, when you dream up stories uh, and imagine how they'll work as novels, uh, are you consciously aiming to bring all those elements together? Or is it just the really good fortune of having this story to work with? No, no, I keep that in mind all the time. So for me, there are always elements that must be in my books. It's a given from me that there there will always be a romance because I, you know, you can't watch any program without there being at least sexual tension in it and enjoying it. And it's the same thing for a book. You need, if you're not going to have a a, a romantic um, relationship there's got to be some sexual tension somewhere and I must admit part of the magic of this book is the love affair with the vineyards and the champagne and the taste and the sensuality of um, you know the making of the champagne there's a lot of romance that is being discussed all the time with Sophie's taste and you know her what she what she reads into the making of the champagne and she brings that across with her storytelling but yeah I have to have that in all the books so for me there always has to be something big at stake there has to be um, an epic sort of landscape something slightly epic in terms of the landscape um, a war is always very handy for a bit of trauma um, I think <laughs> I think the wars, the two wars are fabulous playgrounds. Um, I'm always, if I go into wars, I have to think about, well, where am I going to get all that tension and drama from? There must be drama. There must be tragedy in my stories. And there must be an overarching sort of um, area of interest. So in this in this book, it's the, the champagne. So that the reader actually, when they close the book, they've not only had a wonderful, entertaining experience, I hope. But they've maybe taken on board something they didn't know about something. So with the last book, it was The Diamond Hunter, and it might have been diamond mining, and, and the previous book about pearls, or even 
a lot of people said they knew nothing about the trains, the kinder transport that brought the Jewish children, you know, out of Germany, out of Prague, out of the troubled places into Britain for safety. So I always like to bring some element that doesn't feel like a lecture, but there is historical enrichment being passed on. So yeah, no, 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 I've always got that burning in my mind, Ben, always, I've got to bring it all. And if it's not there, I have to make sure it's it's layered in somewhere. Mm. And, and the other fascinating thing you've done with this book is there's this romance and um, a very intimate sharing with the reader of the, the history and the passion of the drink of champagne. Uh, and that's contrasted with the industrial terror of the First World War. Um, you take us to the trenches and, and you rain clouds of poison gas on us, Fiona. Um, <laughs> it's, and it's, it's really horrifying. Um, uh, can you tell me about researching those elements? Um, yeah, tell me, tell me about that. Well, it is the flip side of it all. So we get this um, sort of half of the book is just um, the horror of trench warfare. Um, but then I counterbalance that with the beauty of be emerging into this wonderful, relatively untouched region of Epinay where we learn about the champagne. So, yeah, I had to do a lot of hard yards. And I've been to Ypres in Belgium um, to make sure I knew um, where my soldier is based when we first meet him. Um, I actually have read probably a dozen accounts of what it feels like to suffer um, mustard gas, but particularly chlorine gas, what that what that feels like when it actually arrives and stings your eyes, that first sting. Um, and it's hysterical and horrible what happens to the soldiers. And it's not just, I even began to imagine, it's not just the soldiers, but it's all the little animals that are running around and it's the birds and it's the, everything suffers, everything. Um, I do have a military historian um, who I consult and I go across, he lives in France, um, and he makes me, whether I want to or not, hmm. march across this, what now looks like beautiful landscape, but is in fact, um, was the crisscross of trenches. And he will take me to the direct trench where we've worked out my soldier from that particular division and that particular regiment would have been. And then he'll describe what that trench would have looked like, smelled like, um, uh, how they would have built it, what, where, what the duck boards might have been or where the latrines would be and what that smelled like. So I do... I, you know, it's not all sipping champagne in the Avenue de Champagne. It is, you know, walking through bogs in November, freezing and not wanting to be there, but learning about what it is to live in a trench. Um, and actually spend more time doing that than I do spend learning about champagne itself. So, yeah, that's you have to do that. You can't make this stuff up. You have to actually experience it. And I always go when it's particularly cold or wet so that I do shiver and begin to experience what it feels like. Because otherwise, um, if you go there in summer when it's lovely, you'll never quite touch that that pain and agony of what it is to be in a European winter. Mm. And it sounds like you're, you're really struggling to um, uh, represent that history and respect it yeah. in fiction. Um, it's very well, important. I, I call it due diligence, and I think it's um, 
you know, I consider it, I'm respecting my reader um, if I do this on their behalf. I know they think it's just a way of me getting back to France on their behalf. And I joke about that, but it's part of the respect for the reader. But also, if I'm going to build this world and they're going to topple into it and really believe they're there, um, building that world has a lot of layers. And you have to be... Um, 100% in every aspect of the story, not just the champagne drinking. The trenches have to feel as real as, you know, the Creon restaurant that she ate the Dover Sole in kind of thing. So every bit of it has to be authentic and credible. Fiona, I'm enormously excited for this book to hit the shelves. Um, uh, where does it sit on uh, your shelf for you? Um, you now have a really rich back catalogue, um, not just of historical fiction, but um, you've also written uh, crime and fantasy fiction very successfully. And you've yeah. got a really wide readership. Yeah. Where does it sit, do you mean, in my list of favourites? Is that what you mean? Do I? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> look, the way <laughs> Obviously, I... you have to be favourable. <laughs> yeah. No, look, I... Um... I always thought The Pearl Thief was my very best, you know, it was the story that I loved because it had absolutely everything that I want in a story was in The Pearl Thief. But I think with each book that I write, and that I'm not just saying this, I definitely get better. And I'm very pleased to say that, that somebody who's written 39 books is still getting better. I think that's vital because otherwise, if you get complacent, you know, you're going to end up with your readers saying... Oh, I used to like her early stuff. You know, I, I think that would be my dread and horror would be that. So I love it when um, the a few people have now read the book on the outside unsolicited and said, oh, my gosh, this has to be your best book. So that's a good, good feeling. So technically, it's easily the best book I've ever written um, because my writing is that much better than it was two books ago. Um, I think it's the most... Uh, heartbreaking book I've written perhaps because at the end I think every reader will have to look up and say did Sophie make the right decision and that's why I say in the acknowledgements I really hope you agree with me that Sophie made the right decision so we'll leave that out there for readers to work out for themselves so it's heartbreaking you sort of do need a box of tissues so um, it's perhaps it's a very sad book um, and the champagne I rely on to bring the fizz and the and the bubbles and the the lightness to the story, really, because it is a, quite a sad book full of trauma. Um, I think it's the richest book I've written um, in terms of all the layers and the history. It's the richest book and the most. Um, uh, it's been the hardest book to write ever, without a doubt. I did um, five drafts of this book before we were happy. Um, I kept writing it. Now, I say in the, in the beginning that my, um, my father died as I started beginning the work on this book. Um, and so I had to write through a, gr a grieving time. And that might be why the first and second drafts weren't perfect they usually are pretty good by the first and second draft. But none of us were happy with it. And there was something missing. And we couldn't work out, all of us. I have two editors 
and I have a team of people, and we were all saying, it's fabulous, it's got everything, it's got everything, but why aren't, where, what's missing? And someone said, um, I know who it was, it was one of my editors, said, you know, the funny thing is, Fiona always has a bit of a villain in her stories, but there's no actual villain here. And I said, well, the villain is the war, isn't it? And she said, yes, but you always have a person. And that stuck in my mind. And I thought, she's right. That's what's missing. So when I went back with the fourth draft and I thought, I really need a villain. Who's it going to be? And then it just hit me. um, That's within the same 10 minutes of her saying it, who the villain was going to be. And that I went back and rewrote the whole story for the fifth draft with a villain in it. And it just, as soon, I could hear them cheering in Melbourne when they got it. They said, yes, yes. And I knew they'd feel like that because I felt like that. The minute this villain walked into my pages and he's there from the very early part of the book, the minute he stepped onto the page, I thought, oh gosh, yes, you've been missed. You, this is what's been missing. And he threaded through um, and I just rewrote it. I didn't try to, introduce him i just went back to the beginning and thought brand new draft let's rewrite this whole book with this villain in the part in the and it just brought the whole thing alive so it's been the hardest book it's taken the most out of me so in that regard i think this is my best book it's certainly the most richest present presentation as well it's a very luscious presentation we're giving Mm. recipes in the book um, you know, using um, champagne that I've road tested and sort of built these recipes for the readers. And we've put lovely book club notes and we've we've done some lovely um, work on the outside with gold foil and just making it a really special, texturally um, special book to feel and look at and hold. So, you know, it is, it is, it's the best, but um, will I be saying that in a year's time when, when the next one comes out? Maybe. I hope so. I hope so. I hope so too. But yeah, this is special as you put it. And I cannot imagine this story without its villain. And he, he wasn't there and now he is there. And it's just like, what were we thinking? You know? So we went through four drafts, just working, working and thinking, yeah. So uh, it's worth doing it. And my, I, thank my editor for being brave enough to keep asking me to go back and say just see if you can see if there's anything but I couldn't see it until Amanda mentioned and then it was just like a light bulb you know going on yeah and we have this uh, rich 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 book as a a gift from it Um, how has your um, jet set um, (laughs) career being impacted by our current circumstance. Uh, are you able to work on a next book? It's been monstrous in how it's uh, affected my ability to do what I do because I'm. All of my books are always set on the other side of the world. Um, so, and that's a deliberate. That's I do that deliberately. But I am really feeling the pinch now. Luckily, I was in um, Germany and Britain researching the 2021 book when COVID hit and I was out running the pandemic before we knew it was a pandemic we just knew it was a virus back in um, early March we just knew it as a virus and it hadn't quite hit Germany they were being very blasé in Britain at the time and so we I was just being careful I was 
washing my hands a lot and I didn't take public transport. I walked everywhere. So everything took twice as long or I took a taxi. Um, I'm not sure that that helped me, but we just took some extra precaution. And by the time I got to, I went into Lithuania looking for, again, looking for stories. Um, and by then it had become quite a serious problem. Uh, and by then we were leaving to come home to Australia. So I think they closed the doors as I walked in because we weren't put through any um, special treatment. We just came through as normal um, and we came home and self-quarantined ourselves for about a month. We didn't go anywhere, um, anywhere at all. We were just very careful, got other people to bring our shopping in and all that sort of thing. We were very careful, but I had researched the 2021 book by then. So I'm I'm sort of 35,000 words into that now. So 2021 is safe. My <sighs> problem, my real problem is 2022. Now, if I can't get overseas by, I don't know, May next year, um, and it's unlikely I will, then there won't be a 2022 book set in overseas. I'm going to have to go hunting for something locally. Yeah, so or we'll have to be Australian based. Yeah. So I'm, I've got a plan B happening at the moment. <laughs> And I'm sad because I've got this most enormous idea for 2022. It is enormous. It'll be the biggest thing I've ever had to try and pull together is for 2022. And we had the, I had all the planning set up for where I had to go. Um, but uh, I don't, I can't imagine I'm going to be getting on a plane ne by next May. But if I can, I will. You know, I absolutely will. If I'm allowed to go, I will go uh, because I want to write this story. It's so exciting. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled you're giving us things to look forward to. <laughs> you know, I'm very it's huge. It's huge. <laughs> um, Fiona, you've been such a dream and I'm, I'm thrilled for this new novel. Um, can we finish with a, a quick uh, lesson in the world of champagne? Um, I, and I think a lot of people, uh, for me, uh, sparkling wine and especially french champagne is is a, a very rare specialty in my palate you know it's it's something that you might have at christmas or new year's um but uh um i want to know how is it best drunk um flutes or coops yeah for a start it's very interesting you say that because I always thought it was a flute it brought the best out in a, a champagne. But if France right now, and it's not a bowl that they use, but a, a slightly um, shortened thimble-shaped sort of glass is how okay. they get the best, the best um, of the bubbles to maintain themselves and keep effervescing. Um, and a really great champagne is... You don't need lots of it. You just need to get a party started. You know, a, a glass or two, you don't need more of champagne will get a party started, especially if everyone's drinking it. Everyone will be feeling that lovely um, spritz. And probably the drier, the better. Um, if it's too sweet, I think you might get hammered quicker. Um, and also it it lacks that sophistication if it's not dry enough if you know what i mean yes. um it's it's uh, you know ha ha drink it you don't need too much around it it's not something that you necessarily pair with a meal it's more something you pair with 
um, those canapes or something like that or or something very light because champagne gets the party going on its own as you arrive. Yeah, that, that's something I wanted to ask because I, I never know what to pair with, with bubbles in terms of food. I, I kind of want to enjoy them on their own merit. <laughs> yes, well, because you don't want to spoil the flavour or your palate. Mm. Uh, I, maybe I should do a, po a podcast and, and get it straight from the horse's mouth, you know. We're doing a lot of beautiful sparkling wine in Australia, of course. And, I mean, where I live, I live in the Clare Valley. I mean, there are producers here making, um, and all around Australia, making beautiful sparkling wine. We're just not allowed to call it anything but sparkling wine. Mm. However, when you taste the real thing and you taste it in situ, you're sitting in a... Um, sort of uh, 18th century mansion overlooking the vineyards of the Côte de Blanc, um, you know, there's something a bit more special about it, that that the bubbles feel just a bit more chiselled and they hit your um, mind and your mood. That's the other thing that I learned from Sophie. She said, champagne tastes differently depending on your mood. So if you're in a bad mood, champagne will taste different to if you're already in a happy mood. Now, champagne can improve your mood, but if you arrive, you know, you're coming to have a great time and you taste champagne, it hits you quicker. So mood is very important to how champagne works and how it moves around your tongue um, and, and what it's saying to you. And she said she tastes, when she gets her first sip of champagne, she can taste her childhood straight away because, and she can taste her father's cellar. She can taste the chalk in the, in the champagne. And she said, I can smell my father's cellar and me, a little girl holding his hand. So champagne is about memory as well. So it evokes memory for people. Um, um, and that's why it's such a powerful um, stimulant, I suppose, for um, making you feel good because it brings back usually happy memories because you're rarely drinking champagne, you know, at a funeral or something. You're, you're usually drinking champagne at a wedding, you know, or, or, or the birth of a child or something like that. So it tends to evoke great memories. Um, drink it at any time of the day or night. That's what they always say in France. Champagne can be drunk any time of the day or night. Um, and of course, you know, spring and summer, it's a great, it, it's the time to be in, enjoying it most of all, um, spring and summer. Well, I look forward to being able to share a glass with you in person. <laughs> Absolutely. Soon. When we're through this. Um, it's It's been such a pleasure. Um, thank you for appearing on the Booktopia podcast. I'm delighted anytime, Ben. Thank you. And to all your listeners, um, stay safe, stay well, and we'll see you all soon. The Champagne War is published by Penguin Random House and you can buy it and all of Fiona's books at booktopia.com.au right now. Thank you for listening to the Booktopia podcast channel. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes for free and get access to hundreds of author discussions, book analysis pieces and more. Or if your eyes need a workout, head to Booktopia TV on YouTube. Don't forget, for all books featured in this podcast, and for access to a whole bunch of other fun content on our blog, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore, at booktopia.com.au.